if someone comes and says on my Twitter, go fuck yourself, you big fucking ugly dog or whatever, I just feel what's going on in your life that do you feel better writing that? I used to write mean things about people on the internet. Didn't always, it didn't feel better. Maybe there was a moment of like, send, fuck you, you're going to read that and your feelings, but it doesn't ultimately feel good for me. So I would think, well, I hope you got that off your chest and whatever's going on in your life that you need to have that expression. Good luck. That is Artistic Director of the Melbourne Writers Festival, Marie Hardy. And this is episode 296 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is episode 296 of the show with Marie Hardy. Uh, she's the artistic director of the Melbourne Writers Festival, and you can find her on Twitter, Marie Hardy. More about Marie in just a moment. Uh, what is this podcast? It's a it's a bi-weekly show that uh, hopes to make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's really all it is. Uh, every Monday and Friday, you'll hear the show, and, and something to do with the show will hopefully make you think a little bit differently, a little bit you know, of a different tack of how you might do things. Um, maybe tweak things a little to the positive. That's really all we're looking to do on this show every Monday, every Friday. Uh, Fridays, I check in, see how you're going. Monday, I have a guest and we talk about, oh, you know, the world and all it holds <laughs> pretty much. Uh, thanks, everybody, that sent in an email this week. Send us your email at gmail.com. Especially a big thank you very much to Sarah, who sent a, a well, I ask you to please send me a picture of what you're looking at when you are listening to the show. It's called a pod. It's like a selfie, but a photo of a, what you're looking at as you listen to this podcast. Now, Sarah sent one in to send us your email at gmail.com. Uh, she took a podsy of her coffee machine with a note um, saying it was Eckhart Tolle. Yes, it was Eckhart Tolle. Um, on Friday's show, I was lost to try and figure out who the bloke was. It was the Austrian guy. Uh, Eckhart Tolle, who will talk about the pain body and talk about things like this. Yeah, he's got a fascinating voice. Anyway, so thanks for that, Sarah. Also, Ali in Darwin, who was making some delicious uh, plant-based cookies up in Darwin that looked delightful. And Timothy, listening on the subway in Sydney. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I really appreciate uh, finding out where you listen and how you listen. Also, thanks very much to anyone that wrote and reviewed the show on the iTunes store. That really helps. If you can rate and review and subscribe to the show wherever you can rate and review and subscribe to the show. That's a very, very helpful thing to do, second only to letting somebody else know about the show. So just tell someone about the show. That that would be the best. Um, so to encourage you to do more ratings and more reviews, a big thanks to uh, Kiki, who wrote in, uh, I have to admit, I wasn't happy when I first listened to Osha's podcast. I was mid-series of Teacher's Pet, which was frustratingly taken offline to avoid jeopardizing a court case. Devastated, I googled, best Australian podcasts, and Osha's came up. I'm so happy it did. I love the insightful discussions, challenging issues, and lateral thinking that underpin this whole series. I always go away with a positive idea, and it's made me realize true crime was making me distrust pretty much everyone. Bam! Done with that. Well, thanks, Kiki. That's awesome. I really appreciate that. Um, and who else Who else wrote in? Uh, I think Sam wrote in. In the last three months, I went through a breakup, which I handled poorly. 
It filled me with regret. However, finally, I realized I needed to work on my depression, self-worth and anxiety head on. This podcast is helping me daily. I'm currently in Europe on what was meant to be a holiday. However, without access to the help I need back home, I ended up feeling rather afraid. Nice to be reminded others are going through similar battles. It's okay not to be okay. Thanks for your honesty and insight. Thank you, Sam, very much. Make sure you get some help there, Sam. Um, And a good one here uh, came in, uh, mind equals blown. I'm new to the whole podcast thing and started with Osh's after a friend's recommendation. Thank you to your friend. My daily walks around Cornell are now so much better. I'm walking further as I don't want to leave the conversation. Uh, thanks this is stuff is really good for my mind and body. I was blown away by the mushroom episode, episode 24. Yeah, that was a really good one. <laughs> that was uh, that was a really, really good one, that one. Uh, so thanks heaps for sending in those reviews. It really, really makes a massive difference. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today. Marik Hardy is an actor, writer, screenwriter, presenter, and currently the artistic director at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. From her beginnings as a child actor on Australian television to her work as a presenter on Triple J and as a screenwriter for shows like Last Man Standing and Packed to the Rafters, Marik has always had a solid through line of creativity and storytelling in her life. In her role as Artistic Director of the Melbourne Writers' Festival, Marika is responsible for shaping the tone and vision of the festival, which I was very fortunate to be a part of in 2018. The Melbourne Writers' Festival does kick off at the end of August 2019. The theme this year is When We Talk About Love, and the festival will feature extraordinary appearances from people like Ben Folds, Charlie Pickering, former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark, New York Times bestselling author Sloane Crosley, and many, many, many more. It's a fantastic couple of days. I highly recommend you get along. mwf.com.au for more details. Marik's is really interesting. As someone who grew up in the public eye, Marik's got a lot to teach us about not only how we can deal with life at that level, but also dealing with the criticism that can come from putting yourself out there, something that we can learn from, even if you're not someone who has a career in broadcast or broadcasting. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as we explore the benefits of being creative in your life, both in a creative, both creative in a way that leads back to you, but also creative in an anonymous way, which Marika has found incredible benefit from. It's a great chat with a fascinating human being. So come now to, um, I believe it was St. Kilda Road. It was this interesting little Art Deco apartment that um, School of Life put me up in when I did a gig down there. Um, We had a great chat. And this is me sitting down with Marie Hardy. (laughs) 
Thank you very, very much. Super Terrifying. interesting. <laughs> yeah, super interesting. It's super, super interesting. I'm rolling, Marie. Okay. So I was talking to Georgia the other day. and Like, I, she hates it when I ask her the question, look, what do you want? To healthy and human. That's it. That's yeah. all I care about. Real, yeah. It's really all I care about. Where are you in the four? Your, I'm two of four. Two of four. I mean, I'm an only child, so I don't know what the pecking, like, what does that mean? What, what traits have you picked up as being two of four? Ah, uh, that's, yeah, I've probably got whatever the middle child gets. But there's two middle children. Mm, there are. Do you both have those same traits? Maybe. Are you similar? To we you? are. We're ah. very similar. Me and number three. Number three lives here with his husband. Oh, okay. Yeah, here in Melbourne. And um, uh, one and four are both in Brisbane. Are they all, do they have a creative streak? Um, they are all very creative in their own ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that creativity gets a bad rap in that creativity seems to only be if you have a pencil or a brush or a violin in your hand. Mm-hmm. But who, who is giving it this bad rap? Well, your I think when people, gen- just- no, I think when generally people think of creativity, they think of, visual medium or or a musical medium. However, I would put it to you that um, someone who's very skilled in economics has to be incredibly creative to come up with a solution. Well, that's creative thinking. Yes, well and truly. And it is indeed in creativity that the greatest technological breakthroughs that have happened that bring us the life we have now. That's true. And so creativity is in every Workplace and in every well, not career, just workplace in every life, every career, and heart, yeah, really, absolutely, without you a know, doubt. Yeah. So when people go, "Oh, I'm not creative," that's not true at all. Do you say piffle to them? I do, do actually. You say tosh. I, I say piffle quite a bit, actually. You need to. It's to a good piffle. word, isn't it? It's a good. Yeah, pish tosh, I like as pish-tosh. well. Pish tosh. Oh, pish tosh. Yeah. That's a good. It really times. gets the point across, doesn't it? Pish tosh. I met Georgia when she was ten. And so I had to curb my swearing very, very seriously. Did okay? she have a swear jar that she used? Well, well yes, she did, and she mm. set the prices of them. They were steep. They were steep. And um, now that there's a baby coming, I'm going to have to say goodbye to the swear words again. And so pitch Am I allowed to swear? You swear all you yeah. like. Oh, I remember years ago um, my ex-partner's very small child um, was staying with my parents and we went to pick her up and my mother said, I think you have to stop swearing in front of the child because she was playing with the cat. She must have been about two. And the cat walked away and she said, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and I thought, okay, it's time to stop swearing. But also that's in context. She used it yeah, in true. the correct way. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of. Was it you or your partner that? Look, it was pro- it could have been either of us. Yeah. But um, I, I'm a cusser like yeah. I like to cuss there's power in cussing but I also cuss when I'm nervous and even when I'm not nervous it punctuates my I feel I, I honestly I feel the same way there is um there's a whole as a sober person there's a whole element of the sobriety scene that I was exposed to when I lived in America that is very very straight laced wear suits to the meetings and no swearing you're not talking about straight edge people because they don't wear suits. No, but no, no. That's a very severe yeah. sobriety arm as well. It is. Mm. It is. No, it's all very much a part of self discipline, and you know, it's a kind of that that wing of the sobriety world attracts people who have 
there's looseness everywhere else in their life, but to to make sure like they're really strict on the no swearing it's thing. It's control. It is. And isn't it another element of transferring your addiction or obsession to something that yeah. like people go to the gym yeah. and people become very obsessive about certain things when they can't yeah. be obsessive about alcohol or escape into alcohol and drugs. Well, yeah, I, I would I would put it to you that in my case, at least, in yeah. my case, uh, the the addictions were the escaping oh, yeah. from uh, emotional. Well, I would say that's pretty common, anything. isn't it? That's yeah. what most people use them for. Avoidant behaviour. I was talking to someone this morning mm. about I'm very interested in the moment in loneliness. Oh. So death was something I was interested in for a long time in terms of making work about death and yeah. thinking about it and keep reminding. I think it's very healthy to go I'm going to die that's really great and mm. you never for me personally I never live more fully than when I'm reminded that it's, this is finite and impermanent so I found that really a joyous thing but I've been looking at loneliness it's really powerful and the difference between being alone and being lonely and what people run from and the reason I thought of this is because I was talking to someone today who's, who lives alone and he's turned 50 and he has no kids and and he said, and I just sometimes I get so lonely that alcohol is the only thing to curb loneliness. And, of course, it's a lovely cushion for loneliness as it is a lovely cushion and escape for many feelings and emotions. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I just loneliness is a thing that so many of us seem to be terrified of. And we will stay in bad relationships to avoid it or we will just go, well, I can't be single because then I'm going to be lonely so I'll get into something. But it's actually with us all the time. If we sit and make space for it, you can be lonely within a relationship, within a functioning relationship. You can be lonely within a family. I'm sure many of us have experienced that. So why are we running from something that is actually there all the time? What is it that people are so terrified of in terms of loneliness? Because it's a fear chasm. I felt loneliness before where it feels like I'm yeah. going to fall off a cliff. I'm so terrified. Yeah. So I know what it is. But when you sit with it, you just think I'm alone all the time. I'm alone in the world. What is the fear? You might be interested in, have you read Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections? No. You may be fascinated with it because he his hypothesis is that anxiety and depression in the same way that you've just been to India, so you would know. Um, For 12 days. Yes. That, so I am an expert on the subject. Clearly. So ask me anything uh, about it. So India. that feeling nausea mm. is a signal that you have eaten something that is bad. Yes. Similarly, anxiety and depression are your body's signal that you have unmet needs. Um, and he goes, that's his premise, right? And then he goes on to explain there's nine really kind of main causes that he uh, he's a lot of research, a lot of nerdy, like he doesn't just like pull it out of his hat. It's, it's he travelled around the world extensively and spoken to many and many a professor about it. Yeah, it's a fascinating read. Um, but he talks about loneliness and how, as a condition, it is growing so intensely and is such a burden on our society because we are sitting. We're in this beautiful 1920s building, extraordinary Art Deco, but. Um, there's separate rooms, all right? Yeah. We didn't live in separate rooms until the late 1800s. We lived, we slept in a room with five people. En masse. That's how we lived. Yeah. We lived with five, 10, 12 people at a time, right? Mm. And now we constantly shut ourselves further and further and further away. We'll be in a room with two other people, but we won't be with them because we're in our phone. <gasps> 
you know? That's the saddest thing in the world. Like I'm a book. My nose has been in a book since I was a wee scrap. Was that your on your CV when you applied for the Writers Festival? Gig? Yeah, <laughs> that was I'm it. Like, One me, line. <laughs> me book, we scrap. Give me the job. Um, <laughs> and, but I still I love reading at the dinner table. That's one of my great joys mm. in life. And I often go out for like lovely three course meals with the book. Han Solo. Oh, totally. I love yeah, it. So I love it. And I don't. People go. Oh, I couldn't do that. I'd feel. I'd feel awkward or everyone would look at me. I'm like, give a fuck. It's so lovely. Like I've gone to really lovely restaurants and because I like food a lot. But also going out with a partner and reading at the table is something that in my best relationships I've always felt is a really lovely thing to be. Both of you reading? Yes. To be silent together and reading in this lovely companionable silence. I know it's different to people. I still don't like two people on their phones at a table. Is it the same thing? It is... They're being silent together, but there's something about the optics of it, I suppose. Perhaps the phone thing is different because there's someone else on the end of it. Sometimes. Sometimes people sit at nice restaurants scrolling through Instagram and liking things. True. It's just it's the most amazing time, the curated self, the the parts of us. And I know it's terrifying, like what you were saying about isolation and going back into phones. I mean, I've been an early adopter of the internet, but I taught myself HTML in order to blog. I used to be on internet relay chat. IRC. IRC. I was on the Beastie Boys channel. And this Watch this crossover. So I, my tiny mind was blown by the internet. I thought, this is, I'm talking to someone in Iowa and someone, and we all like the Beastie Boys. And I made everyone mix cassettes to send in the post from my IRC group. So I feel like I straddled... The, that was my straddling of the worlds. Anyway, that idea of, I think, just connecting with people, but Instagram specifically, there's something beautiful about the parts that people choose mm. as their curated self that tells you a lot about them. Yes, it's curated. Yes, it's not a, or is it an authentic self? Maybe not. But when you look at someone, you go, you chose that. You want people to see that. You want people to either reach out to you or to tell you you're okay or that you're pretty or nice or and there's something kind of quite lovely in that the choices that people make so I know it's problematic it's problematic that we're looking for validation from sometimes strangers but when you look at the human choices that people make when they go this is the me that I would like the world to see it tells you a lot about them as well because you've got a very active social media presence and you use it for lots of things for work for and you I you find catharsis and sense of self through your process as well it's I mean, extraordinarily curated though mm. you know I th- exactly I think <laughs> it's super it's really important to I never really talk about any kind of mental health stuff on there because yeah. I, f- I personally don't feel that's the right place for it what is the right place for this? it? this okay why, photog- why this as opposed to um It's so complicated that a photograph and a, is that me? A photograph and a you know a sprightly worded paragraph under an Instagram picture might not be enough to describe what's going on. And I feel that it's important for people to realise that sometimes it's going to be like ten minutes of talking to describe yeah. what's going on. It's not it's not that bite-sized as wish as much as we wish the world were sometimes things just aren't that bite-sized and do you think people have 
a vision of you as someone who has, because you have spoken quite openly about it, which mm. I'm really admiring of, but someone who has battled those demons out the other side, look at this success story. <laughs> and do you feel that you have the capacity to talk about the fluctuating vulnerability? Because, you know, mental health is an ongoing, changing thing. Oh, absolutely. And I'm quick to correct anyone that yeah, says, you won. you're off meds. Yeah. I can't wait to be off meds one day too. Yeah. And I'm like, I wrote like to this morning, I wrote back to the somebody and went, oh, I'm talking to my doctor next week <laughs> about maybe going back. Great. That's really because, good that you're open about yeah, that. Yeah, it's super important to yeah. understand. Like apparently, uh, who knew? Everybody apparently um, expecting a child. Oh, I, yes, throws, I thought you were going to say Throws that. a spike in yeah. and you, and then suddenly the stakes are now astronomically higher than they were. It's no longer just you. Even I saw though, that in yeah. your body language when we were talking about the child that you, yeah. the child, sorry, your beautiful new human that is going to come yeah. in. But I saw that anxiety cross your face. Yeah. And I guess as someone who has done a lot of self-reflection and a lot of self-healing, this is a whole new yeah. person and level of anxiety to add to the mix. But I also, and I promise this to Audrey, you know, I really see it in that in the same way that it's only been about a year that I've been doing any kind of resistance training that's like lifting heavy things and putting them back down again as a way to stimulate dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine in my body, get the, yep. those hormones, the best things I can do for my brain. I can stimulate those things. I don't have to wait for a drug to do it. Mm. If I, you know, So at this point, that's managing things okay. But in the same way that there's a heavy thing I can't lift yet, there's a slightly lighter thing that's still very, very hard to lift. But if I lift it, and then I give it some time, my body will adapt and make itself stronger. And so the next time I lift it, it feels light and then I can lift a heavier thing. And you know what? That's hard to lift the first time I lift it. Mm. Give it a couple of weeks, my body adapts, now I'm able to lift it. And in the same way, I said to Audrey, I'm like, I'm really looking forward to the amount of strength that I'm going to gather over the next couple of months as I challenge myself to meet this launch date. <laughs> You're speaking about mental strength as yes. well. Yes. Oh, uh, that's all I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm talking about right. mental strength. You know, I'm talking about yeah. dealing with triggers and, you know, dealing with things like that because st- I still every day. Of course. Eric, every day. Of course. Yeah. And do you have a therapist? Oh, I've got a team. You've got a team. Oh, do you see like your therapist pit, everywhere? Like <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You drive in, they get the oil out. Well, Audrey's fu- there with the cars It's funny. The you, pretty much. It's funny you mention that. I um, Over the course of my life, I've had pretty much, I don't know, I've lost count, but I'm going to say I've probably had about uh, probably 80%, 8 out of 10 have been really great, mm. all right? One or two have been like, that's that's a bit of a breach. Mm. That's that's a boundary that's weird. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to come back here. Yeah, but that's yeah. how you learn, isn't yeah. it? And it's such a long process to find yeah. the right therapist and that's what can be as it you is. know so disheartening for people who are like it's time i'm ready i'm not coping anymore i need to find someone i always try and make some lists for people who are looking for and i find yeah. people in their area who might be doing cbt or something that might yeah. be of interest to them yeah yeah and then they go to that person they finally make the appointment and take the step and they think that person is a massive dickhead or they're smarter than that person or whatever it yeah. is and it's so disheartening to have spent an hour telling your tortured backstory yeah. to someone that you're like, this is a waste of my money, this is a waste of my GP mental health plan yeah. and why would I bother going through that again? And it's really hard to find that it's right like dating. person. It's like, that's why I tell people, I say it's like going on a date. Yeah. You're not committing. It costs you $180. But <laughs> you are going to have a, have a sit down and have a chat 
my psychiatrist who's, who's kind of, you know, team leader. It was the psychiatrist who you saw first? Was that your first port of call and then all the uh, other? Ah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's been, the, he's been the common thread since I came back. I came back from America. I was very, very ill when mm. I came back and he's, he's helped me enormously. He's very clever. I was very lucky to find someone who was, you know, willing to question kind of the initial hypothesis, I guess. Great. And go... Okay, so those meds have stable. They should. This should be working, but it's not. So maybe something else is going on. That's frustrating as well, though, for people who yeah. go, "Thank God, I finally got an outlet to not feel like this anymore." Wait, it's not working. Yeah. yeah. Wait, I need a different dose. It's just. It's so hard to be patient with your own happiness, that, isn't it? Oh my God, true. Yet that is. That's just it. You know, it's not like if you and I both have a headache, we could take. We have very, very different body shapes, sizes, How whatever. dare you? Genders. How dare you? I'm ripped. I weighed myself this morning. I'm, I'm so angry. I'm 78 kilos, all right? So I've, pro- I've, got, I've got 30 kilos on you, right? <laughs> well, we could both take the same dosage of paracetamol and our headaches, which would probably, you know, we can describe it as a similar symptom, would probably have an equal result and yeah. probably equally go away. Yeah. Yet there's no fucking way that two same people have the same needs when it comes to no. some, you know, psychiatric drugs. And what? so it's all about the dosage and you ha- it takes, it, it, Panadol will kick in in 20 minutes. This stuff can take six weeks. Yeah. And you've just got to be patient. And it in the sucks. meantime, you're still tormented. Yeah. You feel like you've taken that step towards getting better after goodness knows how long mm. it might have taken you to get there in the first place. Yeah, we all wait for a crisis moment before we get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, they call it rock bottom for a reason. <laughs> um, speaking of which, I just read Moby's second memoir. Whoa. Wow, that's a ride. Yeah. And it's called, it's either, and th- I think it's called And Then It All Fell Apart or It All Fell Apart and Then It All Fell Apart. Yeah. But, you know, you grow up with this idea of Moby as, vegan he went through the big strong christian phase he was a punk rocker so the book this is the second part of his memoir and it starts when play is released and he suddenly becomes super famo yeah but he's still a kind of very fragile child inside as we all are no matter what happens yeah the amount of alcohol and drugs in that book i just wanted to jump into the pages and go oh oh moby it's it's okay hold the fire son please don't smoke any more pcp at a rave Oh, boy, he shits himself a lot and, and just keeps, you know those books where you just think, there's your bottom, oh, no, you're still, you've woken up and you're drinking more vodka. And that yeah. keeps, I think he drank for 33 years. Good Lord. So, you know, what an amazing human being as well. And I and I, I always like people who are very open about their vulnerabilities and their past because, you know, we all got our bag of rocks that we're carrying around and they're very different bags of rocks. Yeah. So I've never medicated. Like I've never been on medication for my mental health, which doesn't make me any better or worse than anyone else. Certainly not. I certainly hope you never have to. But if you ever do, if I do, know that they work. Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not against. I'm not morally opposed to it. But I found my toolkit, which was therapy and meditation, was my key, and yoga and discipline therapy. I've got a very strong work ethic. So I turned that work ethic to my, I had a really bad 2015. And at the end of 2015, I wrote a letter on New Year's Eve to that year. And I set it on fire at midnight, which I now do every year. It's a really good thing to do in terms of letting go. And I went, right, let's let's get well. What's it going to take? Let's find the right therapist. Let's start meditating, learning how to meditate clumsily with an app and go to yoga and see what happens. So I've just been doing that for the last three years. And how's it working Fucking out? worked. Yeah, it works. It means, as you would know, when you do the work, having that toolkit available to you 
when the moments of crisis happen, as they do, because being alive is hard, then you can, you've got something to reach for. And if you've practised that, I mean, and that's why meditation, what they teach you about connecting to breath, you can access that in moments of crisis. So, yeah, I found it really helpful. <laughs> Say if someone uh, is going, yeah, I'd like to set a, set a year on fire. Oh, yeah. Tell I me about the... Put it in the fuck it bucket. Oh, okay. So tell me about the... Uh, s- let's get a step-by-step. How do okay. we get this letter happening? Well, it's a New Year's Eve thing. As we all know, usually New Year's Eve, you're standing on a rooftop going woohoo with Moby, waving your pants around your head. Not Moby anymore, Moby in the 90s. Um, And there's that pressure to be going, what am I going to do with my New Year's resolutions and stuff? But if you have had, I mean, all years are emotionally challenging. You know, some years are slightly easier than others. There's no major death or trauma to deal with, but they're all tough. And when we crawl to the end of that year and it gets to New Year's and I sit down on New Year's Eve, so it's dear 2018 thanks for this i really appreciate this lesson this was really hard i'm really fucking glad that person's not in my life anymore etc put it in an envelope when it's midnight set it on fire in a safe place away from any you know gas flames or anything like native bushland or fauna <laughs> exactly it's a hot summer in australia although i did mine in europe this year so it was fine but i find i mean i'm really into symbolism and catharsis which runs in parallel to doing the emotional work inside there's symbolism is very important burying things burying wishes in soil turning soil over i think it's important fabulous yeah but it would you wouldn't necessarily have to wait for new year's eve like if you were listening nah. to this right now you're like all right that's it i'm going to do this on you know i don't know may yeah. the third yeah that's what's going to happen and i mean you set your own yeah. i mean it's this is the thing, and I don't mean to talk about dying all the time, but and this goes back to loneliness as well. We're all going to die alone. Like the, when it's just you there on the pillow, hopefully you're surrounded by your friends and family and people who love you, but you are the only person taking that journey and you're the one answering to yourself at that point. What are the things in your life that were meaningful, the choices that you made? When you trust your instincts, as you would know, because I'm sure when you were very unwell or when you were drinking, there was that voice inside of you going, I don't like this and I don't think it's the right thing, that wise mind that you connect to. When you reconnect to that, it just gives you a freedom. When you shout at that wise mind for long enough, it eventually stays quiet and you can get on with the business mean, like, of destroying yourself. Do you if you drown yourself. it, if yes. you glug, 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 glug? Yes. Oh, yeah, it's really easy to do. You can get oh, on we... with the business of fucking your life up. Well, we disconnect all that. <laughs> we, we all do that. I mean, how often do we fuck our lives up yeah, consistently? Yeah. yeah. Like probably once a day we make decisions that are like, I shouldn't have said that, I regret that, that was embarrassing, I made a mistake, I feel terrible, I feel angry, I feel distressed. I feel but anxious. Then we have a choice point, though. Yeah. We can choose what to do about that. Yeah. We can choose to either go, how can I make it better? Or go, fuck them, they should have never done that. And then, what, you know, which one's the path of more growth? Or accept it. True. That's, that's been one of my big learnings yeah. is working with radical acceptance, which is very ACT, CBT therapy technique, which is I can't change what happened. I can't fret about the future. Right in this moment when I am seething with rage or shame or whatever it is, I absolutely accept how I feel in this moment. It's going to change. I don't need it to go away, but I know it's impermanent. And so I accept it. That's really annoying because you have to sit there going, I am feeling angry right now. What does that feel like physically? It feels like, and so, and then you get through it, of course. 
But, uh, yeah, that impermanence of feelings has been a big unlocking for me as well. There was a, it, I really relate to that. Yesterday I was in a meeting and um, we were going through, how do I describe it? We were just get, get, getting some source material for a decision that we needed to make. And in the source material, there was just one particular page. It was just like every trigger I've ever had on wow. one page. Wow. And um, my CEO just kind of looked at me and, uh, you know, I gave it a couple of minutes and I was, you know, trying to carry on with it. I couldn't hear a word anyone was saying. Yeah. My body's just like... Lightheaded. My amygdala's just gone just full fucking... What's an amygdala? There's the, the amygdala is the... Um, the little lizard part of your brain at the top oh, of your okay. spinal column yeah. yep. that goes, I don't care what rationality is. I'm out of here. Um, we're getting ready to either shit our pants or run. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Moby style. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay, we're associating <laughs> with pants. Okay. There is a lot of pants shitting in the book. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, like, it's basically like, so even though your rational brain is, well, that's not real, your body's already yeah. in, in that space as if it were, right? Yeah. And, she kind of saw me and then, you know, I gave it a couple of minutes and then we had a, there was a natural break in the room and it was a small meeting room and I was like, oh, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. I went to the bathroom. She caught me outside. She said, are you all right? I said, no, I'm not, uh, but I will be. Um, I'm just, you know, and I just, I just straight up told her because yeah, you know, I, I know her quite well. And I said, look, this is what's happening. You know, that thing on the page, I know it's, you know, it's just a speculation and it's just a, uh, you know, a prediction based on completely unchanged pathways, you know, if nothing ever happens or nothing new ever gets innovated, that's probably a fair conclusion as to what might happen. Yeah. My body has decided that is now real. My brain, however, knows it's not. So I'm just going to wait until that reaction dissipates. It takes usually about 15, 20 minutes. Do you walk around or you just sit or...? I, I gave it a little walk, had a little bit of a stretch. I'd like to feel my feet in my toes. I run my hand across my forearm. Mm. a bit just to kind of get my skin touching just kind of stimulating those parts of my nervous system to go oh that's right we're here yeah we're here we're here yeah. we're here and um sure enough like half an hour later i was like back at the whiteboard so yeah there's that other the other reconnection technique what can you smell what can you see what can you touch what can you taste just keep reminding yourself like right now what can you see what can you smell what can you touch what can you taste because that is what is actually happening you know, what does the seat feel like underneath you? What does the tea smell like? It's That's a good grounding technique as well. I like that. Yeah, toolkits. I love it's it. It's so good. It's super important. I used to feel my I used to feel my feet inside my toes. Um, I've, I use this like as far back as Australian Idol. I used to get my, um, my toenails painted at the pedicurist's in like usually like fancy. very, very fancy purple, like mm. a dark kind of brooding, I play bass in a funk band purple. <laughs> and I would stand there on stage in front of hundreds and hundreds of people in a live studio audience in a lovely, lovely suit. Yeah. And they're going, I'm oh, coming to you in 10, 9. And I'd look at them and all go, I'm the only one that knows I have purple toenails. Yeah. Go. And then you're like. And that, and that made yeah. you connect like, to yourself. Hmm, and I'm the only one that knows that. I had a conversation, uh, conversa- I had a question based on um, what you said before about letting your CEO know mm-hmm. about your anxiety because that was a really good open thing to do and not everyone can always mm. articulate it and I guess that's the work you've done as mm. well. Are you a shy person? Like are you, uh, are you an extrovert? Do you take energy off being around people or are you, what's your natural? Oh, I did one of those Myers-Briggs tests once. And I'm an I'm an INFJ. I don't you, understand what that Mayers Briggs were. Oh no, I know what the tests are, but what's the specific? Uh, I, I discovered that I'm an introvert. Ah, okay. And I only discovered this in 2014. Oh, that was a good gift. Yeah, it mm. really was. And I'll 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 never forget. You know, 
I was, we were in a, it was this business school I went to in Amsterdam and there was 30 people in the class and we lined ourselves up in, you know, from most extroverted to most introverted. I was one from the end. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how do you look after your little introvert person? I understand that he is just trying to keep me safe. I don't know if he's a true expression of who I am. I'm actually generally, Audrey's fascinating because she has, Total situational awareness, mm. all right? Much like you, and you were able to discern a look on my face, all right? I, I can't, I don't know that. Yeah, right. I see two eyes and nose and a mouth. I have a very difficult time perceiving emotions from facial expressions with uh-huh. other people. Um, but Audrey can, you know, we can scuba dive and I'll have a, a regulator in my mouth and my eyes will be covered and we can have a whole conversation because she can just tell, all right? She's just like you that. You are very seen, my friend. She's That's very, a good thing. It's made me good at my job. Yeah. It's made me good at my job because I'm also very – the converse of that is I, it just comes out of my face without me having to say words. Yeah. Which makes me good at my job. Great. Um, but she – we were away on vacation and we were – I think Flight Center must have had a special because we took a flight. We needed passports, but everyone in Australia was there as well. Mm. So there was lots and lots and lots of Australians where we were. And um, she noted that when people would come up to me, I was like – please don't talk to me, please don't talk to me, please don't talk to me. And my body language would be like completely closed off. Oh, hi, sure, we can get a photo. All right. Uh. But she said, when I'm in charge of the interaction, when I initiate it, it's a completely different scene. Interesting. Completely different scene. So it's about your control and space, really. Absolutely. Are you conscious that you're feeling that way when someone's coming to it? Like, do you feel the physical symptom? You feel it. Yeah, because I can tell I'm out in the corner. I've been lucky enough to have a job in the public eye for nearly 20 years. So you can mm. kind of tell by someone's body language as they walk towards you, even if I'm staring under a baseball cap, under a trucker hat, you know, looking at my phone, staring at the floor like I was at the airport today. I can tell by the way someone's feet yeah. are walking towards me that oh, they want to talk to me. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it turns out today they were really nice people that I'd met, I don't know, 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So it was actually really lovely. Do you ever say no to people asking for photographs? I did for a while. Yeah, at, at the start of this holiday, I just wasn't into it. I just was feeling really fragile. And, and did like, that make you feel bad? Like, did it you? It made Audrey kind of be like, just give my fucking photo. Just have the photo taken and then yeah. it's over. But I don't know. I just get this. I'd, I'd rather have a conversation with somebody, just have a moment to have a chat rather than. I'm just in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt, you know. I had this idea for an art project about people not carrying their phones around. Wow. But it was it's this whole thing that I'm trying to come up with. But, you know, you park your phone at the door, which is obviously complex for a lot of us who have relationships with our phones. But one of the parts was you get taken on all these little surprise journeys. And one of them is, like, you walk into, like, a Japanese restaurant and there's, like, Kate Blanchett and these people, but you don't have your phones you cannot dock, you have to sit down and have a conversation or a meal with them and just be in this lovely experience mm. with some human beings who you just want to say to everyone, I met Kate Blanchett and get a selfie with her or whatever it is. What do those experiences look like or feel like when you don't have to prove to people that you had them? Mm. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. I, I don't know how people would cope. I know, but the, maybe that's a sad thing because... I'm sure Kate Blanchett would love to. What I don't can't speak for her, of course, but but wouldn't it be nice to sit down and say, "Hi, Margaret, where are you from?" Yeah. Oh, I my brother went to school there. You know, that's yeah. nice, isn't it? All right. Well, it's been lovely to see you. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> you know, yeah. didn't have to, wouldn't have to be Pass long. Pass the soy sauce, Kate. Well, they're sitting down for a meal together. That's what I'm. Yeah. Thinking. Wow. It wouldn't have to be long, but I think you're right. You know, this uh, if 
in, in the past, it was collecting an autograph as a proof, as evidence. Oh, I had an autograph book. I bet you did. Yeah. Uh, as evidence that you um, met someone. Yeah. Uh, and now it's the trophy gathering is the, is the selfie. It's not just that, though. It's I mean, I'm as guilty of it as anybody, is that sometimes you just, who are you proving it happened to? I'm not quite sure. Mm. But you take a, Here, here's my holiday, here's my view this happened and you show your friends and they know where you are and you are, we're going back to the curated self a little mm. bit now. But I find as a writer and someone who wrote very publicly about myself for a long time, I would be having experiences and writing them in my head. And I'm thinking, who who is that for? What is the audience that I am going, I'm trying to compartmentalise this experience, especially if it's uncomfortable. Mm. It's my way of disassociating, going, oh, then the lady on the massage table, you know, touch my boob. Here's a funny story. And I'd start, I would be in the experience mm. and it would be formulating in my head, which I didn't think was a super healthy way to exist. But I felt like I needed to document that experience. Yeah. It's giving it to someone else to hold, I think, sometimes as well. You could write it down and just have a career like David Sedaris and just, you know. Oh, thanks. No, I'm not interested in being a <laughs> multimillionaire with best-selling books on the New York Times bestsellers. Who spends, who spends his days picking up rubbish? Do you want to know something amazing? I think it's about that book specifically, the last one. Is it, is it Let's Talk About Diabetes with Owls or the other one? Anyway. The last book that he wrote... Just, sorry, just for, for folks who don't know, he wanders around the countryside picking up trash yeah, and yeah. has received an the award French, from the Queen yes, he's to do magical. So. Yes. I wrote him a fan letter when I was about 20 and he wrote back in the post. I've got a, a letter from David Sedaris in the post that he typed when he used to use a typewriter. So I've been super fan for a long time. And his last book, he did. there's an essay about... Because he's tiny, he's shorter than me, and I'm a short person, diminutive. And the essay was about how he doesn't realise he's short, but then he, people talk about him in the media and describe him and the way they talk to him. And he talked about coming to Australia and meeting a journalist who he really got along well with and he really liked. And then he read the article and he was described, I can't even remember what the words when I was reading it, and I went, that's me. That I did that interview. That's I'm the journalist. And I was so excited to be in a David Sedaris book and that he liked me because I felt like we had a quite a good vibe. I thought that is a life goal. I mentioned in a David Sedaris book and not in a hugely disparaging way, like he didn't call me an asshole or something like that. I thought that was a coup. That's better than a selfie. It, yeah. Well, it took a bit longer planning. I had to do an interview with him yeah. and hope that it... And write know, a letter to him some 10 years earlier Yeah, to have that connection of when you met to go, oh, you wrote me a letter yeah, once. Yeah, and maybe that had an impression on him yeah. then. And he's, But then he read the article and it tied into this whole piece he was writing about being short. <laughs> it was so cool because I was reading it and I was home on my own and I looked, you know, when you're like, oh, my fucking... I'm in a deck. No one's here. <laughs> no one's here to share this really exciting thing. Again, the loneliness uh, and who are you going to prove uh, it to? I just had to enjoy the moment on my own. It was terrible. <laughs> Awful. Well, this does lead me to something I did want to ask you about because that is a very quite a public, you know, a lot of your work is in the public and you work in the public I and you are the creative director of the Melbourne Writers Festival. That's a very public job. Mm. Yet there is a large amount of your body of work that you have deliberately done anonymously. Yes. Self-funded. Yes. Anonymously. Yep, best thing I ever did. Now, can you please talk in this I, in this world of I'm constantly trying to prove to this group of people on the under end of my phone, here's what I did. Look at what I did. Yeah. I did this thing. Why would anonymous work be interesting to anyone? 
Do you mean to anyone who would go or to anyone Why who would Why would anyone it? want, like in this day when, you know, the, it's like almost like the opposite of the, the goal of any gig or any job or any holiday, holidays are now only about let's take the photo. Yeah. Let's show how, where we went. It's not let's actually Being enjoy the, the surfing lesson. Yeah. It's surfing lesson plus photo. Yeah. All right, we'll get Here's the photo. The hanging ten. Yeah, that's I it. I believe that's a surfing term. It, it is. Again, it's very back hard. to my sporting knowledge. It's very hard to do. Tell me about anonymous work. What do you get out of anonymous work? Well, I mean, you have to understand that my decision to move into making art anonymously came off the back of 15 years-ish growing up very much in the public eye. I mean, if you count before that, I was a kid actor, but obviously the internet or anything wasn't around then. But I was, you know, in... Henderson Kids too, man, every afternoon. I was on the early bird show. We got to flip pancakes and we were promoting with Barty the Monster and I went on Young Talent Time. It was pretty exciting. So I grew up very much in that realm and then I grew up very publicly because I was blogging and writing for the newspaper and I wrote about myself all the time and I tried that David Sedaris thing. I was hilarious stories about my life and I wrote a book in that same vein. And as you would know to some degree as well, when you're growing up in the public eye, you make a lot of mistakes in the public eye or you maybe don't know how to protect yourself very well. I'm not embarrassed of the collection of essays that I wrote, but I look back at that now. I wouldn't write that book now because I look at it and it's a funny collection of essays, but some of those stories I look at now and they go, that wasn't funny. That's not a funny story and I want to protect the person who wrote that story. That's a vulnerable person, but you're trying to go, but I didn't care. I thought it was funny. So it was a combination of that and getting really pummeled by the conservative press anytime I did anything. The fact that Australia is very small and anytime I would try to do something new, whatever I'd done previously would be automatically attached to it. So they're like, there's that dickhead from the book show who's now writing a play or whatever it is. So I just wanted to be able to make something that didn't have all that attached to it, that wasn't about me, that I wasn't the centre of, that I wasn't in, I just created this work, and that was art as a gift, art as altruism, that didn't have to be self-serving, that I didn't have to be rewarded for it, I didn't have to be recognised for it. And that's a lot to do with the fact I don't want to have kids of my own. And I did start, I lost a friend to cancer and I started going, well, what is meaningful in life? Not you have to have kids for your life to be meaningful, but what do I want to make in this world that is beautiful and kind and means something and maybe changes five people's, not their lives, but even their days or a moment. And so that was a really big drive behind it. It was just like, how about if you make something beautiful and amazing and 60 people see it and they go fuck the world isn't terrible for today that's and so that's what I did I did that for three years and I still do it but you wouldn't know about it no of course not now I don't want to out in any way thank you the kind of things that you have done I truly don't know what they are okay we can talk about it later are you able when you do like do you lurk are you like you get an apartment across the street with (laughs) it With a pair of binoculars. Yes, I'm a horrible pervert. You've outed me. No, um, like, like, do no, you? No, some of the pieces I'm in in a. Co- I mean, some pe- people would have seen me in some things. Like, I produce them and I direct them, and as you say, I fund them. And sometimes they're not theatrical, performative. They're more like live art or immersive stuff. And people would go, you know, would see me wandering around. I'm not like the Phantom. I don't have okay. like a face mask on yeah, and yeah. a 
You're cloak. not in crew black pretending to be the yeah. lighting guy. <laughs> just be with a moustache going, oh, doesn't like me fixing the um, grid. No, no, that's and that's fine. It's just the scope of the things. People don't need to know it. I didn't do it for other people. I did it because it's really important sometimes. In the same way if you donate to charity sometimes, it's good that people talk about it and, you know, you and I both do a lot of animal activism work and that's important to showcase Sometimes you just got to go and do it and not tell anyone. And just be kind for the for no reason, hmm. other than that makes the world better when people don't have to document it. For me personally, no, I, and I get that, and it's quite. It is a. I remember early on when I was experimenting with Buddhism, the idea of, I don't know, no, you're going to go out and do something good, and you're not going to tell anyone about it. Mm. No, 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 don't say, don't, no, don't even mention it. You're just going to go out and do something good. And not tell one person. Not even one person. Don't even tweet it. Nope. Just met a woman on the bus, lol, tweet. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good. That's the head on the pillow dying bit where you, for me, what you want your heart to sing with. All those small moments of kindnesses that didn't have to be showcased or highlighted or documented in any way. And there are bigger kindnesses and there are family kindnesses and friendship kindnesses that are as important. Mm. But that for me was a step towards a meaningful life, which was going, what does art look like when it doesn't have my face plastered all over it, my opinions plastered all over it, when it's a gift, when it doesn't reward me financially, when it's just something that I think is beautiful and you give it to a stranger or someone who has been curious enough to buy a ticket and that's it and then it disappears. I wonder what it's like at scale when you have someone like, you know, let's say for young people, you'll have to look this band up, when you have someone like Daft Punk. I think you were going to say Moby. Oh, no, no, someone oh, like Daft Punk. Daft Punk, I see, yes. Who are, have their entire career... I mean, if you really want to find out who they are, you can find out what oh, they look you? like. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, I shouldn't know that. You can find out who they look like. Yeah. Um, I remember remember the uh, GT, the DJ, Groove Terminator. Oh, Groove. Yeah, Simon. Oh, GT, sorry. Simon. No, just GT. His name's Simon. Anyway, okay. Simon showed me a photo once. And he was like, oh, yeah, I was just down at, because we both lived in Los Angeles at the time. He goes, yeah, I was down at Whole Foods and whatever his name is, I'm going to make up a French name, like Guillaume from Daft Punk was standing yeah. in front of me buying beers. I'm like, beers. how do you know what he looks like? We're like, Oh, everyone knows what it looks like. It's like if you're a fucking DJ, maybe. <laughs> but, or, or someone like Banksy, you know, what's it like when you're at that scale where you are selling out arenas but no one knows what you look like? Well, Daft Punk have probably got, I mean, it's going back to Buddhism, a lot of it's probably about ego as well. I mean, and Daft Punk have got a pretty good business model now because they must be, well, they're older than me, so they must want to have a few quiet nights in every now and then. Who they don't have to go on tour, just put some dudes in helmets in. Craftwork style. They're like, this is definitely us. Yeah. That's a good business model. I'm too tired to be Daft Punk tonight. I want to stay, stay at home with my baby. So gonna give it to Johnny Kafoopsie to put on the Daft Punk helmet and <laughs> Johnny's pretty Johnny, good in the helmet. Johnny Kafoopsie's always good in a helmet. So that's good. But yeah, I mean I I'm lucky enough to have I have worked in public with things that I love as well. Like the book show was 11 years of talking about books. Mm. So people come up to me and talk to me about books. And awesome. in bookshops, we're like, what are you reading? What are you? That's awesome. I love that. And that wouldn't have happened if my mug wasn't on the TV for 11 years. So I'm lucky that I can still speak to people from that yeah. access point. But I'm also lucky that I get to make 
private stuff, you know, and I write television that funds that stuff. It's cool. I mortgage my house to make one of my art pieces. I regret nothing. I, I regret it. nothing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You, um, you mentioned that animal activism. You, uh, last year at the Melbourne Writers Festival, you asked mm. me to come and be a part of a, a beautiful event. It was called the... Uh, the animal church. You are, you know, you're the creative director of the Melbourne Writers Festival. I can't imagine the workload. It, it must be an incredibly daunting gig. I offered to do that job anonymously. They wouldn't let me. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's good. Like they wanted to go. Oh, it's the book lady is running. The, uh, is the board want? And yeah, it's yeah, nice yeah. to have a name attached. But True. I kind of went. What does it look like if no one knows? And then I just get to go. Yeah. And they went into it. Was there a lot of um, like? nodding sagely at a whiteboard when people are using acronyms you don't understand. Yeah, so, Marie, what we've got to do here is we've got, to, we've got, we've got some KPIs on the CRMs oh here which we really God. want to get through to FY19, okay, okay? Yes. Yes, that's a good. That was my first, the last time I worked full-time in an office was when I wrote for Neighbours when I was 19. Long time ago, I put in the Hannah... Hannah started skateboarding and got a boyfriend called Casper because I was obsessed with the film Kids. So that storyline in Neighbours was me. Is that where it came from? <laughs> Do you Fucking Casper. Casper. So, and now, you know, 40, how old was I when I started writing a special job? 41. I didn't know what a KPI was until I started that job. And what I found really daunting about it is I spent two months, you know, I'd been working in event management. I'd run Women of Letters for seven years, which was a really beautiful, you know, spoken word event. But that was all self-motivated. I'd done a lot of TV writing. I'd done TV production, so I'd worked in production offices. But here I am full-time at a desk doing the sad nori roll lunch at the desk and wearing a lanyard and I was going, what have I done with my life? But for the first two months of the job, I thought, well, I've made a terrible mistake because... People were talking in arts management speak and I didn't understand them. So people talked about strategic value alignment and I felt stupid. I felt really that I didn't know what they were asking me to do or what they expected of me and it really rattled my confidence. So I had to take myself home in, over the Christmas break in 2017 and just go, I know what I'm good at. I don't need to have that language in order to, to do this job, which I love go back to what I know, which is curation and production and trying to get people to talk about human experiences and loving words and loving stories, and that's what I did. You know, you just have to make the program that speaks to your heart. And I worked with my therapist on it, of course, because you do. I felt really sick in the months leading up to the festival but before we launched the program because I kept looking at it and I'm like, what am I missing? What's 
hurtful in this program? What have I blindly with my privilege put in there and I'm going to get very rightly called out on it because I don't, I, you know, not that I cared about the shame factor so much, even though it's awful to be called out publicly for something, which has happened to me before and it's fine, but you just think, what have, what have I missed in here? And I talked to my therapist and I said, I'm worried that people are going to say this program is blah and it's blah. And she said, what do you think? I said, I think it's beautiful. And I've worked so hard on it. And I, my heart and blood is all through that program. And she said, well, that's what matters. And she's right. It was fucking awesome. It's such a good program. <laughs> you mentioned a few times now that people, conservative press, having a go at you. Yes. And um, you are. For a long time. Well, you're a favourite target because mm. you're A, female, B, smart, C, not afraid to say stuff. Sweary. Sweary. Yeah. And C, some of the work you've been doing, or D, I think I'm too bad now. Up to D, yeah. D uh, some of the work you were doing was on the public broadcasters, therefore as a taxpayer yeah. they have a right to tell you what yeah. they can and can't say. Now, I feel sometimes I get a bit sad in our beautiful, small, incredibly safe, prosperous, lovely, lovely country. I get a bit sad that the way I describe it is that near our old house in Canmore in Brisbane, there was a, a school oval and some people would throw rocks at the floodlights at night time just because the floodlight was there and they just wanted to smash it because it was up there and they didn't give a fuck if everyone else got to be in the dark because they're like, look, I hit the fucking, I made yeah, a smash. I fuck yeah. It good. And that for me kind of describes the kind of voices I, when I read conservative and, and particularly quite attacky media it's like yeah well, it's okay to have a dissenting opinion but do you really have to be such a fuckhead about it mm. like how do you steel yourself against that because not everyone's going to be in the public eye but everyone has someone in their life that is like that to them yeah but that someone probably doesn't write a full page with a photo of them on page seven of this the is true. national broadsheet this is so true that this is, is a true. different experience. Look, it's happened for such a long time now and I've got pretty thick skin. It's really hurtful the first few times. And, I mean, for women it's I'm not just women but specifically it's very violent. And I would always know when the conservative press had had a crack because then the, their commentators or whoever it was would flood my social media making sexually violent threats or saying, I hope you kill yourself. What we now unfortunately go, well, that's a common experience for women in media. So I would know that it, I'd go, oh, I must, have, I must be in a column. This is my new friends. But the first few times it happens, you just think, but I'm a nice person. I don't know. Why are you like this to me? Sure, I was a bit mouthy about John Howard. And that's, you know, I was a pretty vocal, young, political lefty. But I don't deserve this, surely, and that's hurt my feelings. Now so I don't think that anymore. Now I feel like if someone comes and says on my Twitter, "How go fuck yourself, you big fucking ugly dog, or whatever, I just feel, what's going on in your life? That Do you feel better writing that? I used to write mean things about people on the internet. Didn't always, it didn't feel better. Maybe there was a moment of like, send, fuck you, you're going to read that and your feelings, but it doesn't ultimately feel good. For me, um, so I would think, well, I hope you got that off your chest and whatever's going on in your life that you need to have that expression, good luck. When it's someone with a very big platform and the Writers' Festival copped a lot of critique from voices like that and a lot of it was directed at me personally, ultimately I thought I'd rather be me than them. Like, 
that's not how I live my life and I'm very comfortable with that and I feel sad that they're gone, great, here's, a, here's something we can get our teeth stuck into. And I, and I back myself. So I backed what I made and I back the way I live. So that, that's a good way to get through it. But it does. Also, I found that the whole culture wars thing, which is why, you know, I made a festival so that I go, it's a stupid left-wing communist festival. It made me sad because I thought they're still talking about me as if I was a 25-year-old blogger. And they haven't given me the chance to grow up or learn any lessons. Like I'm, there's like, here comes this left-wing rat bag. I'm like, well, I'm 42 years old and very open about therapy and work and making choices in how I express myself publicly. But it feels like once they've pinpointed you as something, and that's the hard thing about growing up in the public eye because once you're that an initial person, it's hard to move away from that. Yeah. yeah. There's a devastating line in um, Clementine Ford's new book, Boys Will Be Boys. In fact, the book was so intense I had to listen to it. Mm. because I was having just visceral reactions of closing it and putting it down. Yeah. I was never finishing it. Yeah. I'd read a sentence and just go, fucking hell. So I had to, I ended up just listening to it while I rode my bicycle because then I couldn't turn it off because my hands are on the handlebars, right? Does she do that? She do the audio Yeah, she does. Here? Yeah, she does. Yeah. She, have she you had her on? Have first you one. No, no, I haven't yet. I'd dearly love to. I'm doing yeah. an event with her in a couple of weeks, which oh, I'm great. really excited about. Yeah. Um, but she has this line, women have a past and men have a future. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's true. It's so true when you think it's – and it's awful, mm. you know. Anytime there's any kind of, you know, here's a, a blip that we go, hang on a second, we only ever go, well, you can't say that. The young man's got this ahead of him. He's got that ahead of him. Oh and it's like, God. well, of course she did that. Look at the fucking what she was wearing or what he was – what she wrote or what she said. Or if you look in 2008 when she was on Triple R, she did a segment about blah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like that was fucking 11 years ago, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, what did you say 11 years ago? Do you still believe it with all your heart? Probably not. No. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. Like no one gets the chance to learn. Yeah. And that is a really interesting, delicate moment in time we're living when people fuck up very publicly and get – and did you read John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed? No. That's a fucking great book. Yeah. And, God, that must have come out quite a while ago now, I feel like seven or eight years ago, and talking about internet shaming, um, he, and he met people who had been the cause of an, like, of an internet pile. And remember mm. that woman who got on a plane and tweeted something very racist and then turned her phone off? Oh, yeah, yeah. And by the time she hit the tarmac at the other end, there was people with cameras waiting for her, people going, she's going to get fu-, this sort of gleeful deliciousness. And he interviews her and how much it breaks your life. But all these internet shaming, that book came out a long time ago, people saying I could never work again. But what does it look like when people start learning or people accept responsibility? And I I don't know the answer to that because we're looking at people like Louis C.K. back on the comedy circuit. Now, he issued a kind of short apology and now just from reading the transcript of his stand-up is sort of quite defiant and unapologetic now about where he's placing himself because the more that people fuck up in public or the more options we've got to express ourselves in public and then inevitably fuck up, are we allowed to learn and come back? I don't think Louis C.K. necessarily has apologised in a way or, or reflected maybe is the kindest term I could use in a way that yeah. is, is going to help the people that he's hurt. 
But what does it look like if someone does say, I've really reflected on this and I've done my work, please can I play music again? And I, we're going to watch that unfold because we're not there yet. No. But it's going to be really interesting. There's some, this is only in my reflection upon it, Marie, in that there are some infractions, particularly violence, all right, particularly violence, we are pretty quick to go, well, he's learned his lesson. He's all right. We can have him back on the football field or... Well, yeah. we're talking about ex-AFL players who have glassed their girlfriends in the face and then get high-paid commentator gigs. I would utterly agree with you. Yeah. When it's something else, and I'm, you know, specifically thinking about the recent just balder dash around Yumi oh, Steins. Don't even start me. All right. The amount... It's almost like there's some things... That like, woman is a national treasure. Truly. And yet there are some things that no act of contrition seems to be enough. You know, that we, and you well, see so it. What does she have to be contrite about? Well, Nothing. Absolutely well, fuck all. Well, true. But uh, people calling back to, oh, this is the same woman that, again, 10 years ago. Made a quip on television. Which, in my opinion, wasn't ago. as bad as the other thing that was said by the man on the panel. Um, who would remember that, though? Exactly. Went on to, like, really deeply and personally apologised to the man, like yeah, really quite intensely and, and she very, very, you know, I love this woman to death. She's an incredible woman. Yet it's not enough. Like what's going to be a fuck? What's, what's enough? Yeah. Like she didn't go to prison for it. It's not like there's people sitting in Silverwater Jail or whatever, the Pentridge. No, it's not even a prison anymore. No, Pentridge is apartments it's, now. It's apartments <laughs> now. I don't know. You know, there's people sitting in prison who will get out of prison and people go, yeah, they did their time. Yeah. Fine. You can be a teacher again or yeah. you can be a whatever again. But there's some crimes in our society that were like, particularly if women commit them, that are like, that's it. You're never, ever getting off the hook for that. <sighs> well, Yumi's so amazing and I know how much that original experience bruised her undeservedly and she retreated and she made a beautiful life for herself with her amazing partner and family and you know, did her podcast and her cookbooks and, and threw her passions into that. But was, I feel, was probably taking tentative steps back into media. Why the fuck would she want to be on television again? I mean, I hope she is because I think her voice is important and needs to be heard. She's funny and smart and interesting and engaging. But if you've made your way back into that space and then people are just as hideous, mm. why are people like that? They just make me so sad. That's why I make stuff that makes people go, not everyone's an asshole. <laughs> a random person did a really lovely thing for me and I don't know why and it's not being sponsored by Lexus and it's not on Instagram later. Wow, maybe the world is not terrible and all those people who say racist shit in YouTube comments aren't the whole answer. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What is it called? It's called the um, <clears throat> is it the, the availability heuristic? Is that the, the phenomena? Like I don't if know. all you see, if, if you spend your day on YouTube or Facebook and all you see is your echo chamber and the comments that are racist, you, then your brain has this belief that, well, that's the world. Mm. All right. And I, and I said this to a, a flight attendant the other day. She was asking me, oh, I like watching Bachelor because the world's just so terrible and I like to have an escape. And I said to her, 
12 million people will drive their car home safely in Australia today, three crashes will make the news. Oh, the world's not terrible. Yeah. Don't switch people off The Bachelor. That's your job. <laughs> no. I watch Married at First Sight. I'm not sure if, like, that's as defendable. I haven't watched it. I haven't watched an episode. What's it like? It's like delicious junk food. Yeah. And, you know, I excuse my. I feel like I've got a very highbrow job, so I've excused myself for watching it. But also I'm very self-forgiving, so I'm like, fuck it, you like it, watch it, who cares? Yeah. Um, but I got swept up in it last year because I'd never watched it before. I used to watch Big Brother. I like that as well. My old gym trainer was in was a groom last year and I thought, oh, I'll just watch this guy on television. I'll just casually watch. And four episodes later, I'm like, I can't believe Davina cheated on Ryan. And I'm like, oh, God, they've caught me. I'm in the crack den. <laughs> and I found it so hideously enjoyable that this year I was watching again. This year I'm a little more cautious about my affection. I do feel there are some people who I feel very, again, growing up in the public eye, there are some people on there I don't feel a potentially mentally robust enough not only to have the aftermath experience which is millions of people have been watching you but even you see them within that experience before they're famous and there's some huge emotional fragility in there why people choose to be on there that makes me very concerned apart from the fact it's very white and very hetero channel nine are really copying some stuff at the moment there's a and this is what i find interesting there's a woman on there at the moment who is a bosnian refugee and she's the show's villain She's just the, the most hated woman in Australia, quote, unquote. And I'm watching her and she's like, she is a villainous figure. She behaves in ways that you just are quite shocking. And I think this is someone who, by her own admission, suffers quite severe PTSD. She's a war refugee. Oh, yeah. I think she doesn't always express herself in a way that she's, she's quite cold and aloof yeah. and sometimes words come out in a very abrupt way that sound very unfeeling and unthinking. And those things combined mean she's great TV. But I'm concerned for her. I don't always know that she... Uh, people think she's conniving and chose to be the villain. Do, do people do that? Do people go, I'm going to go on The Bachelor and be the bad person? I don't know. I don't know. It, it's. I said to the same uh, flight attendant, I said you oh, would watch... a long chat. We did. <laughs> I'd say you would see this all day in your job. You would walk down the aisle and go, oh... You're 28 and what you've just done you believe is okay. Okay. What That's do you interesting. mean? Like what sort of like thing? Like whatever, like there's things that people have been doing their whole lives that mm. you, you go, oh, wow, you've been allowed to get away with that or that's been all right in your circle. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure there's things that I do that And people, not only circle but family. People can't believe that is, you know, that I get away with. Yeah. And so it's the same. We just film it, you know, <laughs> which, I mean... <laughs> What's interesting is that I don't know, as a screenwriter, could you write a villain like this and people no, believe it? No, and that's why I watch reality TV. I don't watch a lot of scripted TV because I've been a screenwriter for over 20 years now and I can see the stitching. I don't get as much relaxation. I prefer to read a book because I go, what an interesting casting choice. Oh, they must have had to film that inside because it was raining. That, like, I can't. That's yeah. a great plot twist. I'm going to, and so. I have to be so quiet when I watch the TV. What a fuck, what a shot. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I get it all the time. It ruins it for every, but I just don't enjoy it. Whereas things like Big Brother, particularly when it first started, where it was very raw and these people had no idea how famous they were getting on the outside. Now it is obviously scripted and people go in there going, I'm going to be an Instagram influencer at the end of this. But. 
they're still real people and even though they're edited there are moments that flicker across their face like you before where you think you can't fake that that's really even though you're going I just love I'm sexy sexy sex and you see your vulnerability or something and you can't script that so I think that's why I like watching I'm not trying to defend it either but I think that's always been what I've been drawn to in the very rare cases. I don't feel you need to defend or no, I don't or excuse. Feel I need to like I'm, I am kind of fascinated to know though. You, you know, you were the showbiz in the family. Yeah. You know, for many generations down. Yeah. Um, you know, you're obviously you're your kid when you found out. Well, my parents don't do a job that everyone else's parents do. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. There's you know producers and writers and stuff in your family, and then you became a child actor. Uh, quite a successful one. You're on. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. Oh, that's Piffle. No, you know, really. There were only four channels, and you were on. Two <laughs> I was of them in an episode once. of Country Practice, and my name was Yesterday Hubble. Excellent. <laughs> Brilliant. Which is the name of an unknown Avalanche's record, oh. which is brilliant. Tell me about when you first, what drew you to the writer's room? How did you uh-huh. first become aware of, oh, what's happening here? Well, I, you know, like all bookish kids, I grew up writing. And what was weird is that I grew up with, my grandfather was a very famous communist author. I grew up with my parents who were both writers. But I didn't even think of it as a profession until I was about 17, 18, really. So I just was like, I want to be a star. And then I realised I didn't really want to be a star and I wasn't a very good actor and I was a much better writer. And I got really mentored. I And I got on film sets, film and TV sets. I was on the set of Ocean Girl in the art department. Um, Jonathan Schiff really mentored me. Ewan Burnett really mentored me. They put me, I was so hungry for it. I just wanted to be around. And Jonathan Schiff let me sit in the script room for Ocean Girl the whale, Charlie. I don't know if you remember Ocean Girl. Oh, wow. She yeah, yeah. communed with the whale. Charlie, oh, God. that's not a whale noise. But uh, And I learnt on the job. I never went to university. I don't even think I passed VCE. I, I don't know because it's never been a thing. I just sort of got in there. And it's really hard to explain because it's like breathing. It's one of those veganism and writing are the two things in my life that there's that big click inside and you go, well, that's it. That's it. And it happens so rarely. And, you know, I was a full meat eater. I did a week. Lindsay McDougall dared me to go vegan for a week um, 10 years ago. Uh, well, 11 years ago this year. But I was like, ugh. But I like eating duck and cheese. And I did it for a week. And I was a very unlikely vegan. I loved animals, but I love food and I loved eating meat and cheese. And there was that big click. And I went, oh, that too. It's, it was a really weird one. That was it. I never, I never ate it again. So I want to come to that. I but know. Let, you do. Let's get let's back let to the two r- vegans talking about veganism. Let's, well, let's, well, this so podcast going to rate through the roof. Let's get back to the writing okay, for just yes. a moment because yes. I'm, I'm always fascinated in how careers just change mm. and then suddenly you go, oh, "This is it. Yeah, here I am." Mm. All right, but it was the the hunger for doing it, like. I'm, I've been on camera. I know what it's like to have someone come and get me and then drive me to a set in a golf cart or walk me personally <laughs> holding an umbrella for me. I know what it's like to be treated like that. Yeah. Yet here I am in the art department as an assistant getting bloody knuckles, dragging Loved things it. around a set. Yeah. But I just want to be here so much. Yeah. That's- well, I mean, I'd grown up on set, so I was very accustomed to that way of living. But I knew I wanted to be a creator as well. And I remember writing, I was very close friends. I was, 
I started off as a bit of a groupie for The Sharp, but we ended up being friends. Pete Collins and I, uh, the drummer for The Sharp. You remember The Sharp? Oh, they're the a, a Melbourne trio yeah. predating The Living End. Uh, with a double bass. Stand-up bass, bass Alan Catlin's much. double bass. But Pete and I were really into British TV comedies and we would write scripts together. We've still got scripts of sitcoms that we wrote together and no one was reading these. We were generating it. So we were generating work while I was going to work in the art department on Ocean Girl and then I applied to do a shadow script on Neighbours or just to sit in the Storyliners room and I got a job there for a year storylining and then I don't think I've stopped working. So you did it for free in what? your spare time. You wrote right. stuff. Oh, yeah. But not just that. I would made – I had a <laughs> a girl's skate clothing label when I was that age called B-Girl, which had a zine attached to it. Yeah. We flyer dropped after Somersault. We went into the hotel and flyer dropped the zine under all the – doors and rancid were there and mca from the beastie boys came up and he was like did you fly a drop under my it was so exciting but we were doing we were making zines we were making clothes um it was just i just had a huge drive to make stuff and i've still got that right and Mm. and through that people obviously saw that in you and went well if it's between this person and that person she's the one that's got her own momentum we don't have to put the wind into her sails. I don't know who knows when you find your thing yeah you're just never going to do anything else yeah I mean I've done other things related to that thing yeah but I'm still writing I can't it just comes out you know are you the kind of person that are you formulaic about your writing or you sit down and you just stare at the blank screen waiting for the gold or you just go I've just got to start you're very kind I've just got to start because if I start it'll come well here's the advantage to the way that I work and the amount of projects I work on at one time, which is a lot. I mean, at the moment I'm working on, I'm writing a play, I'm writing a feature film, I'm editing some comedy scripts, my full-time job is running the festival, I'm writing a feature piece for a newspaper. So that all happens. And when I did Women of Letters and I, I like working on lots of things at once, and again, not having kids makes it much easier, but I'm very disciplined. I get up in the morning, especially when I work from home for such a long time, have breakfast, walk my dog when she was alive, sit down, and I'm at my computer pretty much all day. Now, if you're stuck with writer's block on one thing, you do your Women of Letters admin. You just stay there working. Then I'll do a bit of TV editing and then I'll send invites out for the Writers' Festival. So you're just there keeping all the projects afloat. That doesn't work for everybody. That's the way it works for me. So I get to indulge. The play has been really hard to write because it's a translation and I realised I was doing everything else before that until I couldn't put it off anymore and then I wrote it. But doing lots of things at once is the way I work. I don't work at night. I, I shut my computer off nights for eating and yoga and drinking and reading and, yeah, occasionally married at first sight. But, you know. But, so, but you actually have that, you know, in this world of you're a bigwig at the festival, you've got people who are trying to communicate to you from different time zones. Yeah. It would be, no one would be, oh, I've just got to take this call. Of course you do. It's 10 o'clock at night. The hard thing is in the zone of the festival we're at now where we're sending out international invites is when, because I don't wake up in the night and check my phone, but sometimes at 3 a.m. you're like, did Andrew WK say yes? I just want to look. I just want to look. And uh, so I found that was a bit tough last year. I'm trying to be a bit more disciplined. If he said yes or he didn't, you'll find out at, you know, 8 o'clock when you open up your computer. But uh, no, I'm pretty disciplined about I'm really good at self-care. I'm really good at switching off, 
So, yeah, work-life balance. Ikigai, my friend. Very important. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. So to talk about the not eating animals part. Oh, let's. Let's talk about the not eating animals part. You uh, were very kind to invite me to an event as part of the Melbourne Writers Festival in 2018 called uh, Animal Church, and I spoke, I moderated a conversation between people who were long-term animal activists, people who had given their lives over to uh, animal activism, people who literally put themselves in the firing line when you're looking at the yeah. people who are fighting against duck hunters. They're standing between a man with a rifle and an animal, mm-hmm. all right? It's a tough gig, yeah. all right? And it was the conversation about the, the long-term effects on one's own... And self-care. ...and life and humanity, even, yeah. uh, you know, giving yourself over. For a start, though... Can we talk about what the room looked like? Can you? Because I was just so in, uh, enamoured with the room. Well, we made an animal church. Uh, the amazing Simon Nugent, who was our festival designer, we asked people to donate pictures of their long-lost and loved pets because the space was created as a space to celebrate lost and loved animal lives in art and in life because animals can be muse for artists as well. So writers were talking about animals in their lives but audiences donated as well and we framed them all and hung them like a church with kind of blue velvet and candles everywhere. I've got a lot of those pictures as well now. I've kept them. They're amazing. Yeah. It was there were such tennis a gift. balls and dog toys and things all over well, the place. Well, we asked people to donate to come and bring little emblems from their lost loves and, and put them. We had a pet remembrance ceremony as part of the festival mm-hmm. and a woman who is a pet celebrant, she does pet funerals, her company is called Pause and Reflect. Oh, I know. What a fun. I know. But she did a, we did a service. A woman flew down from Brisbane. Like, people put in photos of their pets. There was a slideshow and beautiful Matt Wicking sang. And it was emotional. But it was inspired by, do you know the Pet Cemetery in Paris? I only know the Ramones Pet Cemetery. No, (laughs) it's not that. No, it's neither (laughs) of those things. There's an actual pet um, cemetery on the edge of the river in Paris. And it's some of the graves are really old. I'll show you some photos of them. Yeah. And it's little frou-frou. There's dogs and cats. There's a horse, rabbits, old graves that are no longer tended because the person who made this grave is no longer alive either. But loved animals yeah. that have been, someone misses them so much, they put them in this cemetery and people, there are flowers on some of the graves wow. and it's amazing. So it was very much inspired by that. A mm. place to, when we lose animals, it's a huge grief. And often you're not given the space to feel that grief because people go, well, it was just a dog or let's move on or whatever. And so I wanted to create a space where we could sit and feel that and acknowledge that and also talk about them and write about them and what they are in literature. I'm unrelated, but I'm just remembering now, we, we have a photo of Audrey's old Rottweiler. Uh, Did you our... put it in the church? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's on... Um... It's only a recent addition. We found a photo of, of him on his... Actually, it's on his last day. Oh, that's and nice. And we have a photo of him, yeah, on, you our, know on our mantelpiece. How long ago did he die? Oh, a while now. Probably 2011, oh. 2012. Oh, okay. Yeah. My um, beautiful old pooch died at the end of 2015. That was a shitty year, one of many things yeah, in a shitty yeah. year. But her ashes are in the ink of this tattoo. Get out. No, I've got a tattoo and my friend Les is a tattoo artist and we mixed her ashes in and they're in the ink. <laughs> what I liked about it, though, what I liked about that animal sanctuary thing yeah. was it opens the door to... Perhaps someone who's never, ever, ever considered why they wouldn't eat meat 
to be like, well, some people have never had pets. Some have never had companion animals, and mm-hmm. that's fine. Some people, my order is heavily allergic to cats. I've had cats and dogs and fish. I'm a dog person. I, I love I loved my cats when I was with them and I loved my dogs when I was with them. Good. I've mourned dogs who I loved as if they were my own and then we broke up, me and the dog's oh. owner broke up and then I never found out what happened to them. Oh, I've mourned animals. And it's not, it's an, it's an entry point to someone who's perhaps never eaten meat going, well, this is a four-legged animal and you know if it feels pleasure or pain or joy because you, you know, there may be some anthropomorphization in there but... You know, there's body language you that you can... share a life with it. Yeah, well. and you... Okay. And it's not too far from there to be like, so here's another four-legged... Shush, don't tell everyone I put vegetables in their mashed potatoes at the festival. I'll start <laughs> to trick them into caring. Don't give away my secrets. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I do know what you mean. It's... it's. I think there was, there was a great line in that film. What was that TV show... Um, God, he's very, very clever young actor, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and John Lithgow, Third Rock from the Sun. Oh, yeah. Okay. And one of the – because they were the premise was they were an alien family who were masquerading here in, on Earth and trying to get around watching, observing. And one of them says, hmm, so some animals are okay to keep as parts of our family and some, some animals are okay to eat. Fascinating. And that exactly. was this great line yeah. that kind of, kind of blew my mind. Like was that why you kind of – you know, had that or do you find that that's an interesting way to kind of at least open the conversation? Well, yeah, anything you can do to kind of open the conversation is good. I mean, my, there was a painting of my beautiful oh, – that church was for my dog. That yeah. was my, it was pretty you know, good. and her the tabernacle was, was pretty great. It was a pretty good one. Yeah, good. As you walked into the church, yeah, it was great. You know, we all process our grief through different ways. I made a church and made people come in and talk in it, which was great. I mean, Lindsay McDougall was vegan for like 13, 14 tedious years before I started doing Triple J with him. And he's a great teacher for me in that regard. I'm going to make a big swear now, so just a warning, I'm going to drop the C word. But he was a real example to me because he just wasn't a cunt about it. He ate really great food. I remember coming in with new leather shoes one day and he said, I smell new leather. And I felt really like, oh, God, the vegan's going to judge me. And he was just lovely. He lived a good life and he didn't you know, get shouty. He wore his animal rights T-shirts, but he never made me feel bad for eating meat or guilty about it. And I think there's a way to slowly begin that conversation. But for me, it's food. I like eating and cooking really nice food and sharing that with people. But I don't judge anyone that eats meat or cheese or on our different journeys. But that's how you start food and not being a cunt. <laughs> that's what I think. <laughs> I certainly feel that, you know, obviously you would have seen it in your in the distance between now and when you stopped eating that it's definitely becoming a uh, not super, super weird as oh, it was. Oh, man, you can go to Paris now and there are vegan restaurants. When I went to Paris eight years ago, I went, that's where we're sightseeing in that area because that's the only place we can eat. So enjoy everything there, but that's it. Now, organic bio yeah it's huge yeah iceland reykjavik has a vegan raw food place reykjavik and they do whale and puffin degustation (laughs) in the main street (laughs) i feel that there is a there's room obviously for me personally when we you know because i'm i don't want to be dogmatic about it i don't want to be melanin about it i don't i don't want to take someone's culture away from them Mm. you know if eating whale meat in finland 
you know, that is... Totally. That's the fuel that has powered your society for hundreds and hundreds of years. And being able to choose to be a vegan is a pretty privileged God position. damn it. You know? So privileged. Yeah. You know? But just to have a conversation with someone, I just, just, just be a little more aware about what's going into your mouth and what it's doing. So get selfish. What's it doing to you? Mm. What's it doing to you? What's it doing to your children? People what? don't want to know. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Start there. I know. Fuck the animal. Start I with know. your own body. I know. You know? What, are you preaching to me? Oh, veganism <laughs> sounds like a good idea. I mean. No, I'm just like, it's, it's, it's interesting, though, because, yes, it is a privilege. It's an extraordinary privilege. Yeah. Yet, when I, 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 I am buoyed by, because I've only discovered I'm celiac oh, like nine that's months ago tedious. now. Yeah. Celiac vegan. That's like, and sober. Oh. I'm the most boring oh, man in the world. Oh, you're boring. I'm yeah, that's, so boring. That's really Straight bad. edge people don't want to hang out with me. Uh, <laughs> it's hard because I don't smoke. I've never smoked and I don't take drugs. I do drink wine on occasion and I just feel like that's the last thing. I've, I cannot be a vegan yoga teetotaling because that, that's beyond. I can't do it. This is the last thing I've got that makes me a dirty rock and roller. <laughs> yeah. I beg your pardon, I did not No, 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 it's so. totally fine. But you go to Coles and it's Coles branded. It's not even like some, it's not some product that they someone's come to them and going, we think there's a market for this. Coles have gone, in fact, there's such a market for this. We are going to commission you to make us this particular Tofu vegan gluten-free product. Yeah. And so much so we're going to put our brand on it. And therefore make it available at scale. You've how long have you been vegan for? Uh, I started not eating meat all. I stopped. I started getting curious around '95. I stopped eating meat altogether around '98. So I you've have, watched it all change. I have eaten there. meat. The last time I deliberately ate meat was in 2000. Oh. Two years after I'd stopped altogether, what I was ate that it about? again. What did you eat? Well. I'll preface this by saying I have had papal dispensation from Lindsay McDougall himself. Um, I was, hail, all hail. It was on a, um, uh, I was on doing a documentary about a band out of uh, Alice Springs and part of the documentary is we needed to shoot them uh, on their community country. Yeah. And so we went up a dirt road for two and a half hours, like west, north, west of Alice Springs, like far, far away into the bush, mm. way, way, way into the bush. And we're all out on this person's, um, this incredible human, uh, uh, all I knew her as was mum granny because that was the closest word the the young man from the band said that's the closest English word that describes who she is, mum granny. Mm-hmm. Okay, she was an older woman. She was probably two generations older than him, but he treated her as if it was her mother. Anyway, um, dad, uncle came around, same, same. So dad, uncle came around in a like barely functioning Mitsubishi Sigma that probably had, you know, used the windshield wiper as a petrol pump to make the car work, right? Bush mechanics are incredible. And dad, uncle went and got a roux and they slaughtered the roux and they cooked the roux. The roux is delicious. And I've been two years not eating meat, telling everyone I'm vegetarian. I'm like... Telling everyone, there we go, then yeah, we're back to I'm that like, again. <laughs> I can't not eat this. This is like, yeah... He, he, you know, that's that's not being a cunt. Sorry <laughs> yeah. to keep using that word, but a friend of mine is a vegan chef, and I remember her talking about. It. She said, if I go to someone's house, uh. if I go to my granny's house, and she's gone, look, Carla, I've made you a special vegan pasta, and it's got cheese all through it. She says, I eat it because it's manners, and someone's tried, and you're in their house, and if you're in Tibet, and someone brings you meat, 
and you're in their house, I, I would eat that. Absolutely. It's good manners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. I don't know. You, Lindsay was right to free, well, free you from your yeah, guilt yeah, prison. Yeah. But then in, in 2002 when my ex moved out, that's when I – eggs was the last thing to go. Mm. So I had eggs for like the last four years and then eggs was it. So 2002, so yeah. 17 years. 17 years. So, so you have seen it all change. Yeah. Do people ever – do you cop a lot of like, oh, fucking shut up, stupid vegan no, stuff? Not, oh. No, no, no. Not I generally, face anyway. I generally don't – I'm a little like, uh, you know, like your, your kind of super cool Hillsong friend who – you're like, wow, Jeff, you're really cool. Tell us about the Jeff. What's cool? Yeah, it's okay. You know, I just, you know, like to, you know, I think the world's full of joy. Oh. Wow, Jeff, tell me more. Why don't you come with me on, you know. Oh, <laughs> like, wow. They won't talk about it. Like, not the one who's preaching. They just, like, kind of keep it to themselves. And then okay. only if you really ask them, they go, well, there's this. All right, let me tell them. There's this church I go to and it might not be for you, but, yeah. you know. There are pigs in it, so it's awesome. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you kind of go. Well, okay, well, it's not for me, yeah. but I'm grateful the way we talked about it. Yeah. You're not like, your life is going to be so good once Jesus is in it like oh, he's wow. in mine. You happens. really made eye contact with me yeah, when you were talking like that. Yeah, it's so creepy. It's so creepy when they do that. But I get it. You know, if you've if you've never been around it, and have you ever been in one of those places? Hillsong? Yeah. No. Think of. That would of, set on fire if I walked think, in there. Think of, like, it's extraordinary, Rick. It's like, Ooh. think of the most climactic moment of an in Everyone singing along to the goosebump-inducing anthem at a Coldplay concert, all right, this incredible song, and everyone's like, yeah, lights will go, and you're like, fuck, wow. yeah, but it's about Jesus. No, thanks. But <laughs> if you've, yeah, but if you've never had that. No. And suddenly, if you've never had that in your life, and suddenly you're going along to this thing, you're like, this is fucking cool. Everyone's really nice and it's really lovely and people, there's food oh, afterwards. And are I, you in Hillsong now? No, I'm not, oh, but I get it. You drank the cool No, 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 but me. I get it. Oh, okay. I get it. It's not for me, but I get it. Well, I get it. If you've never had that, if you've never had that moment where you accept that you're not the, the ruler of the world, that like there's something bigger at play than you and it comes in that language, it might be like, Fucking good for you. Why you go? Isn't it also about, and we're brought very neatly back to the subject of loneliness, it's about belonging. Yes. Veganism is a community that I belong. People, when you see another vegan, you look eyes, you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, huh. And there are certain places that you go, yeah, yoga. I mean, you look at people, the people you're like, yeah, we're horrible, we get it. You know, yeah. it's a yoga thing. Anything that makes us feel part of a community if we're distant from our family or we're lonely, you feel like you belong to something bigger. So I don't, you know, if people want to go to Hillsong and bang on tambourines, good for them. As long as they don't hurt people in the queer community, I don't mind. This is true. Whatever gets you through the night. Really. <laughs> yes. I, 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 I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's, um, there's a thing in, um, and I had, I had Jared McKenna on the show. And we had a long conversation and mm-hmm. he, uh, you know, I kind of shared with him there's a, there's a great line and I didn't have the greatest experience with religion in my schooling years. In my sobriety journey, there's a great line in the, uh, the, the main text of the, the um, fellowship that I'm a part of that says, be quick to see where religious people are right. And I would say to you, because I'm, I'm in Melbourne doing this School of Life gig tonight, right? Yeah. Which I was explaining to my, um, talking about my Uber driver uh, asked me about what, what I'm doing tonight. I said, well, it's kind of like there are great lessons in 
Islam, in Judaism, in Christianity, in Hinduism. There's, there's great lessons about how to be a human around other humans. They sometimes come with, or you will burn in hell. Yeah. You know, they come with the baggage, all right? And things like this school of life thing, it's like, it's like a secular version of, you know, it's like he's just, Here's the good part. Here's how to be a human among other humans without the, you know, the threat and the, the mm. rules and regulations and stuff. And so I, I firmly believe, like, in, in all of those texts, there's really good stuff. I concur. But just humans manipulate that this for is true. bad reasons. This is true. As they do in the vegan community, as they do in the hills. Yeah. You know, people, you know, people ruin communism. People, people, <laughs> power corrupts. <laughs> and people, you manipulate what is potentially really lovely material for their own purposes. Yeah. Are you aware of that? The, with the power you wield as the creator director, are you aware of your corruptibility? <laughs> ah, wow. What would you do to corrupt me? No, I'm not easily corruptible because no. I know myself very well. Well, that's really important. And I trust myself. So that's really important. I'm, I, the only way that I'm, the main way that I'm corruptible is I'm a real people pleaser. Yeah. So I find it hard to say no or hurt people and so sometimes you're like yeah I'd love to uh. delegate well I've got an amazing program manager who is <laughs> a, who's very acerbic and, and cold hearted and he's very he's a very good foil to me going let's just hug everyone he's like let's not and I'll book this so it, it is quite helpful but uh, yeah no you can't corrupt me Excellent. Yeah. Are you excited about the 2019 festival? Hell yeah, because I know a little bit more what the fuck I'm doing this time. And the last time I was just like, I don't know, I just want to make a big, beautiful heart party. And we got, it was 400 events in 10 days. Fucking hell. And I knew all those events and all the people in those events and what I hoped the people would get out of those events. And so I didn't sleep for a long time because I wake up going, oh, my God, that person doesn't know that there's another person and we've changed the, like, you know, every event. And because I felt... You know, I wanted it to be a human experience. I'm not very ambitious. Like I didn't, which might sound weird because I've worked a lot, but I don't work to get somewhere. I wanted it to mean something. So it was very exhausting, 400 events, 500 riders. And this time it'll probably be 350 events. And we'll do everything we did last year, but kind of more compact and manageable for a team of 12 people. You it's did 400 a, events with 12 people? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, most, it's six full-time staff at Melbourne Writers' Festival and leading up to festival time we expand to a ginormous team of 12. How long have I got to pitch you the event that I want to do? Oh, go for it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. I'll put something together. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. To pitch. Oh, yeah, do. I'm easily corruptible. <laughs> Wait a minute. What? Damn so it. Because I was, I was worried. It's like I, I've only just kind of like figuring this out. It was at, what, Melbourne Writers' Festival was my first one. It's not like the music festival in that if your album hasn't been in the last nine months, people are like, what are you doing here? Yeah. You know? Some festivals, some writers' festivals are like All right. Yeah. But it's like there was books that are like, oh, wow, I remember that. It's books. Yeah. That, yeah. Because I wanted that person connected to that event to talk about their experience. Yeah. And, you know, I you should do something at the festival. I like you. Like we're very different people, but I think we've got, there's some connections in the way that we experience the world and the way that we articulate our emotional insides. So I like people like that. I like giving people like that a platform. So, yeah, come and do stuff. Let's see what we can do. Mm. So let's see what we can do. Come and do a naked event. I'm trying to get more nudity in the festival. Okay. Mm. Let's see what we can do to get at least 60 people go, that was nice. Yeah. The world isn't all shit. Yeah. 60, my God. I hope there's more than that, but let's start with 60. Just a room. Mm -hmm. Just a room of like 60 people. I think the people at the Animal Church event that you were at, 
felt that. And I remember you being very emotional that day and I remember you being quite emotional about if you don't mind me talking about no, it because you talk about it on stage so that's I don't fine. feel like. But I think at least two of the activists that you spoke to were like, the animals, I don't have a partner, the animals are my life and I share my bed with seven horses and a chicken or whatever it was and and that's fine and I'm not lonely because I wake up every day and the animals need me. And I remember you feeling quite visibly distressed about that because you said I don't know what I would do without Audrey and she's kept me alive quite literally and I feel these people who give so much of themselves to the world don't have that support and it made me feel quite distressed it did. I wonder how you unpacked all of that yeah really I I've I guess since then since then I've come to see that and I, I and I talk about this on stage now in that I was super lucky, super lucky that when I when my brain had fractured my reality into just a thousand facets of horror, so no matter which direction I looked, it all got channeled through this filter of of, of terrifyingness. Uh, every sensory touch, feel, smell, everything was a direct, you know, electric shock to my amygdala, made me think the world was ending. Audrey was this person that managed to pierce that and she was the first person to go, hey, here's, here's some reality over here. Mm. I was like, oh, and I grabbed it, all right? I was very, very, very lucky. But I've since come to see that it doesn't have to be a person. It doesn't have to be a person. It can be. It could be a goldfish. It yeah. could be It could be a cat, could be a dog, could be a fish, could be a plant. Mm. Just if I'm not here... No one's going to feed that fish. Yeah. It can't get out of a tank. Yeah. Okay. I'll stick around for another day. Yeah. All right. And or I'm, you know, I'm a part of whatever, uh, you know, the work I do is meaningful to, you know, some people. Some people. Yeah. Some people need me. If I don't show up, they might employ a new person, but that person's not going to be as good as me. You know. But you are know. you able to access it's not going to be as good as me in those dark probably, moments? Uh, probably not, but like, you probably need definitely need guidance. I was lucky that I had a lot of guidance at the time, I, I, a lot of people trying very hard to help me get better, but it wasn't working. No. And, yeah, I've come to see that it doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be another person. A thing is important. I mean, I'm not very close to my family and... I remember really a very stark point in my life was when I got to a doctor's and I didn't know who to put as next of kin Ooh. on my... So that is always... I just went, who, who like, who cares? Who would get called? And at, at a relatively young age, that's a really sobering, difficult thing to go through. And, yeah, you do need something to anchor you to earth, whatever that is. Mm. Whether it's caring for someone else. I mean, I love my jobs and my friends and my chosen family, my heart family... And they keep you going. My friends and I have a little bat signal that we send to each other that's very helpful, which is two emojis. It's the love heart emoji with the hand emoji next to it. Sometimes that means I need help and I don't want to talk. Sometimes it means how are you, are you okay? And then you get the same thing back. And sometimes it's someone is out there and they see me and they're there and it's very helpful. I try and tell people that because I do think it's a helpful one. If sometimes your support network, you don't want to say help or call me mm. or let's talk. It's just like, love heart, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Okay, good. Having at least one person like that is very helpful. That is a, I, I, I would hope that you might be able to build on that 
and that um, in the realm in the realm of the Johan Hari uh, book, that it is it is the connections that make us feel, oh, it's okay. Yeah. But I see exactly how that works. Oh, just sometimes when you don't, when it's that bad. Yeah. You can't talk. You would know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just want to know, is anyone out there? There, there? (laughs) And someone is. And then you just keep clawing to the end of that next hour. And I really believe in people taking whatever they need in that moment to get them through. Whatever it looks like, you just take it. No judgment. You just take what you need and then keep reflecting and keep learning. I am... so grateful you came around. Yeah, it's been nice. You know what? And I, and I tell you that I, I put a picture of, speaking of Instagram, I put a picture of two dates in my hand. Yeah, I know. I found day. that really helpful. I follow you on Instagram. On Instagram. It's like that post just went gangbusters. No, it was really helpful. It's a picture of dates. No, but the way you described what they do before a workout. Yeah. I thought that was really good. It's really good. It was community service announcement. Here to help. Two dates. I'm yeah. here to help. It's made me think about dates every day since I saw dates that. Dates are amazing. Yeah, they are. Really Half an good. hour before you, like, if you've got, if you're doing like some Kundalini or if you're doing like one of the hot ones. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Like Bikram yoga. Half an hour beforehand. Two dates. Uh, that kind of lets it settle a bit, mm. but that gives you just so much available glucose and long burning carbohydrate that you know when not necessarily Bikram, but like if you're just like in a warm room or you know you're doing those ones they make you hold crow pose for yeah. 25 breaths and you're like fuck man you can hold can you hold crow pose for 25 no. oh, okay start to feel quite intimidated by you no yeah. but i've seen guys that can i've seen guys that go from crow to plank without oh, jumping yeah jerks show off jerks <laughs> You know, but they've been doing it since they were I know. five. I'm just envious, but not that I'm looking at them. I'm just looking at my own mat and the reflection back, as <laughs> they the, say, in the pool of water beneath well, no, you. You're supposed to, the mat is supposed to be. That's the reflection. That's oh. your reflection. Mine's always just a puddle of water. Are you? Do you perspire? Oh, well, I I used to call it splush katasana. Oh. Because my back kind of grows. Yeah, yeah. Because when I go when I go up to Cobra or I, you know, the, I my my body makes fart noises oh, yeah, as it suctions bad. against the mat because it's just disgusting. Yeah, just, I've queefed in yoga, cloud. and you can't if you queef, you can't. It just sounds like a fart, but you can't say it came out of my vagina. It wasn't. Like you can't yell that it. Well, I've tried it; it's frowned upon. But it's so it just sounds bad, and you know that's not what it is. But you have You're to you a, have to never go to that yoga studio again. Look, if you go in a yoga studio and you're not going to expect sweat, fanny farts, you expect to. Farts, but you just don't want you to be the person generating it, do that's you? Fine. That's when your teacher's got to be going. It's fine. It's okay. It's all a part of it. But they most of them ignore it. Though. Oh, I went to a class once in Bondi, and um. I was like, I was on the way to getting quite, quite ill, and I was gritting my teeth, and I'm like, "Fuck, there's so much anxiety. It was mm. awful." I'm like, "Get to a fucking class. I'll just get to a class. It'll be better for getting right." So I went to this class, and I was the only guy there. It was like a like a two p.m., you know, mid middle of the day kind of thing, and I I was kind of new. I'd been there about four or five times, so I was kind of it was quite a small room, probably about the size of this this room here. But they it was mat on mat, right? It was mm. full on. It's probably about full, I think. fourteen or fifteen people, sixteen people in there, yeah. and I was second from the back. All right. And we went down dog, up dog at the start, whatever. Oh. And then we were just holding child pose for a while. Then she goes, now's a really good time. If you, you know, get your last look so you can see how everyone else's bum's looking. You can look at everyone's bums and then you can go, okay, and you can pack that away and da-da-da and then we can get on with the class. All right. You can stop looking. <laughs> ah. And I'm like, 
I'm like, fuck, have I, did my eyes glance and my whatever? And you after do, the class. You do, don't you? I well, looked about four bums this morning. Well, I didn't even thing. think about after it. After the class, I went up to her and I said, I'm so sorry. If I, she goes, it's not you. No. It's all the other girls in front of you checking out how their bums look in their yoga pants. Oh. They're too busy looking at everyone else's ass. Don't, don't, have a good, don't have a good drishti if you're looking at everyone's bums. You've got a what? You don't have a good drishti. You don't have your good gaze. You've got to have just like centered gaze. But. I I am I realize the more I do yoga because my brain is very flitty and active. Flit around, bums, feet, look what that person's hair is doing. There was a girl next to me this morning, she was wearing jangly bracelets. Who wears jangly bracelets to yoga? Every time she fucking moved, jingle, jangle, jingle. And that was testing my patience. And I sat with that <laughs> feeling of being annoyed, wanting to punch her bracelet. Yeah, I realised flicking around. I can describe the bums I looked at this morning. One of the girls had a hole in the back of her leggings and I could see her red underpants through it. I wondered if she knew. The thing with the jangly bracelet? Yeah. That is very much like the resistance that I was describing earlier. You can be grateful for it. So I'm grateful for this test. Oh, yeah. For I can grow stronger from it. Yeah, you sit in it. See, we've got a very similar vibe, even though you're like a big macho man and I'm a little kind macho. of freaky jeeky bohemian. You're on the cover of Men's Health magazine. Uh, yeah, that's you got right. the big kind of I do you know what? I a very old boyfriend of mine that I dated for like three months when I was 19 was on the cover of Men's Health magazine. I thought that is the only time in my life that I'm gonna date someone who ends up on the cover <laughs> of Men's Health magazine. I was so impressed. I got told the other night, and I'm really proud of this, because in that whole article. I didn't mention working out once. Ah, congratulations. It was all about headspace. Good. And lifting. Well, the only reason I didn't talk about techniques or, you know, stimulating muscle growth and hypertrophy. No, you've lost me. It was all about about, just like I came off meds, I needed something to get in where the meds were and this is what I did and this is how it worked. And there was one column about the program but – I met someone the other night after the School of Life gig in Sydney and she said she's a psychologist so she hands it out to her male patients. Oh, well, that's good. As a, and that was like the most extraordinary yeah. thing. Because I'm still, I'm honestly, I'm not, I've never won a Logie. I don't think I ever will. Oh, I'll give, give him a more, t- no. really, If Grant Denyer can Denier, get one. No, he'll, he'll get Just ask forever. Tom Gleeson to do da- a campaign for you. And Grant you Denyer got a Logie for a show that had been cancelled. Yeah. So if he can win, if he can win a Logie without a show, I'm never winning a Logie. No, you can win a Logie. Um, no, it's not going to happen. But do you no, want to win a Logie? I'd love to, but, but really? no one can ever, no one can ever take that away that I've done that. Exactly. And that I'm the first plant-based person on Australia yeah, on the cover. Are. Yeah. And when I say to people, I oh, know I lost nine kilos of fat, and I put on two and a half kilos of muscle eating nothing but but plants, huh? Yeah. Because then. It almost legitimizes the, it's like, all oh, right, well, I know the kind of, you know, what it would take for me to get to that cover, all right? I don't know the kinds of things that I would eat to get there. You got there eating something different? Ah. Well, you've seen all those vegan bodybuilders who are so hilarious and they turn up at all the vegan open days. They're like, look how many push ups I can do. It's, they're so awesome. They just like lift people up and yeah. do push ups and shock people with their yeah. vegan strength. I've, I've actually had I've had, had one on, on this show. Have you? Who did yeah. you have on the show? I had a guy by the name of Fraser Bailey. He's an incredible guy. He is a former butcher ah. turned vegan bodybuilder. Is this, is this your yeah, veggies and the mashed potato? Do you just get vegans on their shows? I do. Oh, really? I sneak them in. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Marek, thank you so much for being thank here and you, taking my such time for being here. It's oh, really it's a pleasure. bloody it was nice, lovely. Wasn't it? Yeah, I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, thanks. I've been doing this for five and a half years now, and it's the show I always wanted to do on radio. Yeah. And now it's, you know, it only took five and a half years. It only took 250 episodes before it started to really kick hard. <laughs> You really made it work. Yeah, but it's freaking yeah. good. Well, it speaks to your heart, so it's, how could it be wrong? I can't wait for yours. My heart? No, your podcast. Oh, my God, don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> Got a lot of great things to say and a lot of great people to talk to. You're very so, good at it. So what is this? Are you trying to lure me in? No, I, can't, I don't have time for a podcast. I've got to make a festival. Piffle, you've got seven <laughs> projects on the road at once. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm scared of podcasts. All right. Just be on other people's. I will. I'm happy to. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to take your photo. I can't tell if we're like winding up or we're still talking. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to about to hit stop, but I'm going to Do take you your photo keep, keep really quickly. Do you just keep going until you press stop so everyone has to hear all the awkward end bits where we don't know whether it's ending or not? Okay. This is the end. He's going to press stop now. You know what I'm going to do? Oh, damn it. <laughs> I'm going to go to the bathroom oh. and you can push that button to stop it. So you can do the sign off and I won't hear it. Until Do you have a, like air. a classic sign-off phrase that I can use? I always say sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Oh, that's a nice thing. Oh, he is actually going to pee. Um, well, I'm Andrew G, now known as Osha, and I want to tell everybody that I deserve a Logie. It clearly means something to me, which is quite interesting because I've done a lot of work on myself, but yet I desire to have a Logie, and if that's important to me, Hopefully everyone listening can try and make this happen because I think I'm a good person and I work hard and I try hard in the world to be vulnerable and I deserve nice things. So sleep well and have beautiful dreams. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Marie Hardy. You can find her on Twitter, M-A-R-I-E-K-E-H-A-R-D-Y. Thank you so much, Marik. MWF.com.au, MelbourneWritersFestival.com.au. That's that's where you go to find out all about the Melbourne Writers Festival. It's going to be a cracking one this year. Thanks. That's Frank, my dog, joining in. Thank you so much to Rachel Barrett, the producer of my life. Um, thank you very much to Rachel for everything. Thank you very much to Andy Ma, who audio produced this podcast. Thanks to Mike Mills, who produced all the music for the show. Thank you very much to Audrey for being an incredible human being and someone that I wake up next to every day, grateful to be warm and fed and loved. Um, she's incredible. And a special extra thanks to all the people I'm working with on this production this week. Um, it's been a massive week and they have offered me incredible support to help me get through these last and next seven days. I'm super grateful to uh, the people at Warner Brothers and the people at Network 10. It's been a massive couple of days, but it's all awesome. So until we speak on Friday, look after yourself, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.